Hello everybody and thank you for taking time to listen to my talk today. It is called Kingdom Politics and with this lecture I want to address the relationship of Christians to state power. I do not want to deal with one or more specific ruler but rather with our reaction as followers of Christ to the, to the respective political system that we live in and of course what the Bible and Jesus himself teach us about this relationship. But before I begin, I would like to invite you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you for this time that you are present to us. Lord, I ask you to teach us and to give us all of your wisdom and knowledge and understanding that you want to give us now. We need your revelation, Lord. Please. Be with us and bless us and bless this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the reason for me choosing this topic, obviously and unsurprisingly, is the US presidential election in last November. Probably the most controversially discussed election in the recent past in the Western world, particularly among Christians. Elections are also due to be held in my own country, Germany, this year. And these two are characterized by a high degree of polar polarization within the German population, slightly comparable to that in America. The current pandemic has made this divisiveness in our society even more visible. Christians in Germany are also divided, although the controversy is not as bitter as in America and German church leaders are historically not as heavily involved in the election campaign and opinion forming. Nevertheless, regardless of what country you live in, I think that the main question Christians all around the world have to face and answer with regards to politics is simply this. How should we, how should the church and Christians relate to the political power in their respective state? This question, of course, is overly complex and not easily answered in any circumstance, but as always, the right approach for followers of Jesus is to follow what Jesus himself says. This sounds logical at first, but in our humanist and self-centered world, it also seems to be exceedingly difficult for many Christians. As is so often the case, it is worth to first take a look into the Bible if we look for answers. Now in the Old Testament, we can see that from the very beginning of mankind, we encounter various tribes and tribal princes that must have formed at the latest after the confusion of the languages in Babel. Abraham and Sarah on their journey to the land of Canaan meet the king Abimelech, who is the first king that is mentioned with a name in the Bible. He is the king of Gerar and possibly already the second ruler of his lineage, <coughs> as his name basically means my father is king. On their way to the land of Canaan, the people of Israel also meet all kinds of different peoples with their respective self-appointed kings who stand in the way of Israel and their God and are all eventually defeated. Now, to me that shows that as human beings, we are ob obviously social beings that like to come together rather than fend for ourselves. It appears as if we have 
a natural instinct to group together and then appoint someone to rule over our group. This behavior can be seen in these Bible passages I already mentioned. It obviously does not have to be a bad thing in itself. It seems to be more like a natural reflex to desire for the perfect ruler and protector who watches over and cares for me and for us. Now, God obviously knows this desire. He created us. He reveals himself to his people Israel and offers them to be this kind of ruler they are desiring. He himself founds his people through his vocation of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He forms Israel in the exile of Egypt. Egypt. He chose Israel to show his mercy and carry out his plans of healing that are meant for Israel and eventually through Israel for all mankind. Now this shows and makes it clear from the very beginning that for Israel and the whole world there can only be one righteous ruler in heaven and on earth, God himself. This also is expressed in the fact that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel, initially do not have a human king at all. They are led by judges, all of whom were appointed as rulers not based on any entitlement or other justification like family lineage, but rather called to rule directly by God. God chooses them because of their character and other standards that usually are not the same standards of mankind or the people that surround Israel at that time. Now, if you like, Moses was the first of these appointed judges. He had the task of gathering the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Egypt, of leading them from there into the wilderness, of representing them when God made a covenant with them and of finally leading them into the promised land, though he himself never entered the promised land. He was succeeded by Joshua and after him all the other leaders of Israel named in the book of Judges followed. They were all put into service through divine calling. They were not elected, nor did they seize power by themselves. It was God's sole decision to make them rule over his people. His election shows that he often chose completely inconspicuous and weak personalities, at least by our human standards, to lead his people. It is true that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now I'm coming to Samuel and his story. Samuel is the last judge of Israel appointed in this direct fashion. His attempt to appoint his sons as judges fails miserably because of their inadequacy. In Samuel chapter 8, from which I'm reading now, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now the people, as a reaction, the people of Israel then decide to appoint their own ruler themselves. The surrounding peoples who have already taken kings from themselves serve as an example to them. I continue to read from Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also do doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, this all shows that God really submits to his own people and their desire, even though this is an open rebellion against him and his decisions. He also knows that his people's desire and decisions will end in disaster, as he instructs Samuel to tell his people this warning. I continue to read, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And then he comes to the conclusion. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is a real warning. But the people of Israel ignore this warning because they want to be like the people around them. I continue with the story. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Obviously, a very different imagination of the same king they're talking about here. Well, the end of this story is probably well known. The people of Israel take Saul from the tribe of Benjamin as their king. Saul eventually stumbles upon his disobedience to God and his own greed when he decides not to remove the impurity of Amalek from the midst of his people. His disobedience leads to his apostasy. And from this point on, unfortunately, he becomes increasingly delusional and eventually acts like a tyrant, like God predicted to his people. Now God reacts to this and decides to end Saul's reign. But he does not just simply end his rule by appointing a new king or replace Saul. He also appoints a new line of kings. And his choice falls on the incons inconspicuous David, whom he does not choose primarily for his own sake, because after all, 
David is only a man with mistakes too, who also commits numerous wrongs and signs during his reign, as Saul did before him. No, the election of the line of David as king shows God's intention in eventually putting himself back into the position of being ruler over Israel and ultimately over the whole world. The choice of David is basically the choice of Jesus, his God's own son whose kingdom will be eternal. As it is predicted in the, uh, from, by the prophet Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Or again, Isaiah chapter 9, the famous, famous statement for to us a child is born and a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the true king we all are longing for. In this whole story, God grants his people the right to make their own decisions, even though he knows that all the decisions are against him and therefore doomed to fail. Nevertheless, he submits to their will and allows it to happen. He also lets his people bear the consequences of their decision, so that they have an opportunity to repent and seek him again on their own accord. And then, at the right time, he sends his own son to show the whole world, among other things, how to exercise just and righteous domination and governance in full humility and submission to God, full of confidence in his strength and without the political power of the rulers of the world because Jesus didn't look for their help. Jesus himself says, actually says in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now this really shows that Jesus is the kind of king, the kind of ruler that Israel should have received if they had trusted in God from the very beginning. When God appointed David to be the next king over Israel after Saul, he actually appointed his, David's descendant Jesus to be the next king. He chose himself as king because he knows that there is no human power that could exercise just and righteous dominion over Israel and over the whole world. There is, no, there is simply no alternative. This power only can only be exercised by God himself in this true and rightful fashion. This is very important to understand for all followers of Christ on earth. All earthly dominion is transitioned. We are citizens of the kingdom of God in which justice and mercy reign, in which God himself reigns. Therefore, we do not seek justice among the earthly rulers, because for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13. In this, whole, in this world, we will not experience the fulfillment of a pure and just overall dominion, at least un not until Jesus himself returns as ruler and king to be this 
rightful and truthful leader. This really has this reality has been experienced by the followers of Jesus over the centuries, whether they lived in a state externally guided by Christian values or in a state that has suppressed and persecuted Christianity. Anyway, for a follower of Jesus, it should not at all be important in which state he or she grows up and lives in and in which state he or she follows Christ. Nor are Christians better followers of Jesus if they have contributed in any way significantly to the fact that in their country particularly many values of Christian ethics and morality have been implemented like it's maybe the case in the Western world. No, such a state is more a contradiction to what Jesus promised his followers when he said, for example, in John chapter 15 to his disciples, Remember the, will, the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And Jesus affirms this in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now this show clearly shows we are not of this world and our salvation lies beyond this world. The world we are currently living in rejects the one we belong to. It rejects our king. This is our reality. The history of the house of Israel shows us very emphatically what happens when salvation is not sought in God's hands but in the hands of the powerful. Even the most faithful followers of God, equipped with political power, had flaws in them. This includes, for example, David and Solomon or other great kings in the history of Israel, such as Asa or Hezekiah. All of them had a, had a close relationship with God but were also regularly caught up by the human nature, by the fallen human nature. So, if the Bible wants to teach us one thing about our relationship to political power, it is this. It is above all that any secular political power is imperfect and that all creation still yearns to finally see the righteous ruler on the throne, the Lamb of God. Now, what does that mean for our current situation? Does it mean that we as Christians should turn our backs on our political ambitions? Or should we maybe not interact with this fallen world and its rulers anymore at all? Surely we should not completely evade this world and its politics. After all, we are still physically present in it. Even if we are a new creation and part of a new city, we should adopt a humble, upright and respectful attitude towards our respective governments. In this regard, everyone probably knows Jesus' famous verse from Matthew chapter 22, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Paul confirms this in his, letter to, in his first letter to Timothy when he asks us to pray for the government so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life. He writes, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So to go on, we have now touched on various stories from the Old Testament 
along with the promises of persecution and the two principles we just heard from Paul and Jesus. But what we don't find in the Bible are clear instructions as to which political force is the right one or a clear <laughs> recommendation for elections for democratic countries, which of course did not even exist at that time. It's astonishing that there are no recommendations given the current heated political situation around the globe and the clear statements and threats of some Christian leaders. Many Christians from all kinds of political backgrounds argue about which politician based on certain values is the right or the best one or the worst one. And by this they tend to lose sight of the true message of Jesus about a loving and fraternal interaction with each other. And now we, with this we come to the very heart of my message. What distinguishes, distinguishes a Christian in today's Western world and anywhere on the world from any other person? That he chooses the right party which represents the right biblical values? Or that he stands opposed to the current hatred by being merciful, patient and oriented toward Jesus? Now, I'm currently reading a lot of apocalyptic predictions in the Christian environment about what it means to vote for the wrong party or politician. There's talk of the restriction of civil rights and liberties. By the way, where exactly does the Bible say that we as followers of Jesus are entitled to civil rights in this world, I dare ask. Moreover, we are controlled by capitalists, communists or other grey eminence threatening scenarios wherever you might look. Now what would Jesus say to this? Probably the same thing he said around 60 times in the Gospel of, to his disciples, don't be afraid. But currently this call cannot be heard in this heated, uh, atm uh, heated environment. When I read some Christian newsletters in the recent path, path, newsletters by the way, which I usually very much like to read and whose authors I also mostly wholeheartedly support, I often had the feeling that they place some kind of messianic hope on the personality of President, President Trump in particular, but also other leaders. President Trump was often depicted as some kind of defensive tower that would stand against the forces of evil and fight for a Christian values system that is endangered by a new world order, even though he does not follow a lot of Christian values. But that doesn't matter. To them. As much as I understand many of these fears and agree in, princip in principle with many of the political views of these authors of these newsletters, I was also shocked by the way they and some other Christians talked about the new government in America and the comparisons, for example, with the forces of Satan. A very common statement, and this was perhaps one of the more harmless statements, is that Christians should not pray for the government in clear contradiction to what Paul wrote to Timothy. To them, praying for the new government would be like praying for Satan himself. That's what they write. And this drastic statement on its own shows what many Christians are priori prioritizing in this heated environment, namely that a political Christianity should and is to is be established and obtained in the middle of the society. The value of love of neighbors and enemies, on the other hand, to them, is clearly less important, even though it is one of Jesus' core teachings. It is the core of his teachings. 
Although the US selection was the reason for me to choose this topic, I do not want to focus on it and President Trump and or President Biden too much. Nor do I want to focus on the political issues that have shaped the American election campaign. No, I am more concerned about the heart of the Christian voters, which has been very much contested in this election, in the US, but all over the world as well. I see the greatest danger in the politicization, politicization of the Christian faith, which is not only shown by the examples I already mentioned, but also by the fact that Christian leaders form alliances with their respective rulers everywhere in the world. They effectively bind themselves and the communities they represent to a fallen human being and its political legacy. There is a very drastic example of how this can go wrong and its disastrous consequences from the country and the church which I come from. Now I am a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Germany and Anyone who is familiar with the history of the Lutheran Church, especially during the time of the Third Reich and the Nazi, Nazi regime, has come across the so-called German Christians, Deutsche Christen. They were an inner church party founded in 1932, even before Hitler seized his political power. In the church bodies, they spread their ideology, a Führer-oriented stream in German Protestantism, which wanted to align itself and its theology with the ideology of the Nazis. The German Christians emerged from the middle of the evangelical church and completely adopted the racist and anti-Semitic views of the national political leader, Hitler, and the apparatus that emerged around him, the Nazi regime. Before and after Hitler's rise to power, they celebrated great services of praise and thanksgiving to honor the Führer, they hoped and worked towards a complete co-optation or coordination, called Gleichschaltung in Germany, of the church with the Nazi apparatus. A well-known evangelical theologian in that time, Immanuel Hirsch, wrote the following sentence about Hitler's rise to power. Not a single nation in the world has a statesman like ours, who is so serious about the Christian faith when Adolf Hitler closed his great speech with a prayer on May 1st, the whole world felt the wonderful sincerity in it. This sounds crazy, right? I mean, he's talking about Hitler. Hitler's rise came at a time when the German people were heavily affected by shame, fear and anger after the defeat in World War I. This also applies to Christians. This was the perfect breeding ground for a charismatic personality like Hitler in whom a messianic expectation and hope was placed, not only, but also in the church. In this climate, the, mov the movement of the German Christians arose, which also saw Hitler as a messianic figure. The program of the German Christians was, among others, like this. The dissolution of the 29 state churches governed by synods, which were free in their confession, and the creation of a Reichskirche, which means an empire church, Structured, structured according to the Führer Prinzip, basically meaning the Führer, the Führer being on top of the church, Hitler being on top of the church. Then, of course, the expulsion of Jewish Christians and the de-Judaization of the church's message by turning away completely from the Old Testament and reducing and reinterpreting of the New Testament. 
then the purification of the Germanic race by protection from the incompetent and the inferior. And last but not least, the annihilation of the supposedly public enemy Marxism. Through this program, the divine service and the entire alignment with God was sacrificed for the cult of the Führer. There was a, this was a church community, community that had completely sold itself to a ruler who was far from God and, was complete, and this community was completely assimilated by the latter, by, by Hitler, and ultimately became swallowed by its downfall. Large parts of the Lutheran Church supported the Nazis in their persecution of the Jews and other minorities, or at least refrained from resisting them. Only small cells within the Church opposed this movement, but their testimony obviously was suppressed or even persecuted, like it was the case with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. After the end of the Second World War and the dissolution of the German Christians, the Protestant Church the Lutheran Church in Germany was in tatters. Although some kind of review and reappraisal of this time took place within the Church, it is still questionable from today's point of view, at least, how effective this rehabilitation truly was. Certainly, many atrocities have been atoned for. On the other hand, even today, the Evangelical Church still sees a strong tendency to speak out on political and social issues rather than boldly proclaiming the gospel. The church still is completely politicized. If you will, of course, it has changed its political position compared to then, but not its position towards politics in general. To me, this seems to be a legacy from that period, a consequence of the unresolved guilt in the assimilation to the political system of the time. This is a stark example of what happens to a religious community when it binds all its life and fate to a political leader or group. Of course, initial ascension is followed by a deep fall. And what remains is a profound lack of credibility. Credibility is one of the most important values of the church. It's one of its most important currencies. Now, what is the significance of such a stark example for us today? Do I see the same danger in our political conflicts today? Is the situation I just described uh, comparable to today's situation in America or any uh, situation on the world, any other situation in the world? My answer to this is yes and no. Now, I do not want to presume that any of those pastors and spiritual leaders who have or still are actively campaigning for President Trump or any other political leader have a similar mindset mindset as the leading German theologians and church leaders back in the Third Reich. I'm not able to do that and I don't want to do that. Nor does the situation seem to be comparable to me. The political system and the social atmosphere in Germany back then in the 30s are too different from the present day situation in the US. Yet, in many of the statements of these spiritual leaders about President Trump or President Biden or other political leaders, uh, in the world, I see a clear politicization not only of the biblical message, but also of their own religious community. The fate of one's own communi community and spiritual well-being is tied to the respective political leader, and therefore also the credibility of one's own testimony. 
many evangelical theologians and church leaders back in, uh, in Germany in, in the 30s proclaimed Hitler as their redeemer at that time. Their entire testimony has inevitably suffered from the fact that their redeemer has fallen so deeply and has been anything but a redeemer. This danger to me seems applic applicable to our present day situation at least a bit. So if both the biblical testimony and numerous examples from human history clearly indicate that human reign is insufficient and unjust, then Christians must at all costs avoid being instrumentalized by such a political figure or position. Such an alliance with a secular ruler, all, all these rulers according to the Bible will one day be subjected to God by the way, this alliance, this alliance is not pleasing to God. This is all the more true when a person's political position is seen as justification by Christians to deeply attack, insult and even hate that person, even if this behavior contradicts the very character and message of Christ himself. Now to this, I, I, I am happy to quote uh, Timothy Keller, who in my opinion rightly says in one of his recent tweets, Christians can never feel morally superior to anyone, to anyone else at all. That means, main point, when we call out evildoing in others, as vital as, as that, we can never imply by our attitude or language that they deserve God's condemnation, but we do not. Right now, our very social fabric is tearing apart because of, among other things, increasing mutual demonization on both sides. Christians must not contribute to this in any way. Of course, and this is also reflected in this quotation, we as Christians do not have to avoid any political discussion or confession. <coughs> of course, I can stand up for my political position and sometimes I even have to. I can also rep represent and defend political leaders passionately if I respect them for what they are, a fallen creature made by God just as I am. However, if I tie my spiritual life and all that belongs to it to a political leader or a political group and make myself one with them, I will rise up with them as well as fall with them. <coughs> as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God is destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. To come to a conclusion, if we put our hope and trust solely in God and his redemption in Jesus, then we build our houses on rock and not on sand. We will then experience the rule of Jesus in our life and that the political battles of this world have no, part, no power to shatter us anymore as we are citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom in which love and mercy reign rather than fear or super, superiority. This to me is what kingdom politics looks like. 
I want to conclude this, this talk with the very powerful statement that is Psalm 2. I will read it completely. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to conclude with a prayer. Father, you really are ruler over the whole world. We honor you. We worship you. We want to see your reign in our lives and in our world. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, we really need you. We want to see you and your reign. Be blessed. In Jesus' name. Amen.